dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson, Meryl McNally. And for this episode, our special guest, friend of the podcast, author of Queen Meryl, Aaron Carlson. Woo-hoo. Hi. Thanks for joining Thanks us, for Aaron. How are you? Of course. Thanks for doing this show. It's I'm nice to have you it. back. Yeah. Um, I love your podcast and I love any excuse to talk about Meryl with yeah. other fans <laughs> who her as much as I do. Yeah. I think that... Uh, was probably the most well I shouldn't say this probably because I've interviewed a lot of people now but the interview I did with you for Queen Meryl was like so much fun just so much fun we talked for hours I had to cut it way back in what I posted because we talked for hours we talked for like three hours at night. so good and I was so jealous I missed out on that conversation it was great it was fun. It was really nice to step into the shoes of a listener and listen to you guys talk. It was I so- miss, oh yeah. Well, I remember we, we did talk for like three to four hours. Yeah. I was at the height of promoting Queen Meryl. So all, every bit of trivia was just at the top of my brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was nice too, because your, um, so. your publishers, your, I think your agent had kind of given me an indication that like you didn't have much time and then it it was like actually it turned out to be such a like relaxed interview and I think it was kind of late at night at least in my time we're in we're in different time zones but it it ended up being like really late here by the time we finished and I was like oh we're still going and we probably still could go unless you know we chop it off at some point but yeah that was fun (laughs) so I'm glad you are back and here to talk about one of your favorite movies it's just such an oddball one in her career I think not in a bad way but it's just such a unique one in so many ways we're going to talk about plenty but before we do let's go around the horn we always start with what have you been watching lately besides plenty what have you Erin let's start with you what have you been watching lately um I feel like I'm consuming so much content um I have been watching Ted Lasso uh with Jason Sudeikis on Apple TV um, you love it, Meryl. You love it. Um, it is so good. Jason Sudeikis plays a football coach who goes over to coach soccer or football in the UK. And it's a, it's a very heartwarming, wonderful show. Um, I'm watching Dash and Lily. It's a YA romantic comedy um, streaming on Netflix, which is cute. It's set in New York. And um, I'm also watching The Undoing on HBO, with um, Nicole Kidman and uh, Hugh Grant. And it's like a noir thriller, psychological drama. It's fabulous. Yeah, I've been waiting to start that one. I like to wait until there are, all the episodes are out and then binge them all. I can't do the week by week thing, uh, which used to be such a thing. Like we always used to do that. I, I cannot do it anymore. And so I'm waiting for that to drop the whole thing, but. I find that I'm really enjoying the old school process of waiting for Sunday night um, in a way that I haven't in a long time. It feels very nostalgic and delayed gratification because I'm binging everything right now because it's COVID and where, what else am I going to do? <laughs> Uh, no, I can't wait to start the undoing. So would you give all three of those thumbs up or are you critical of any of them? I, I'm sort of like, 
a bad person to ask about this because even if something is mediocre, you I can still find it enjoyable. Like all of the crappy rom-coms on Netflix, you know, that are, they're rolling out in the holiday season. They are so bad, but so good. I feel like if you, if something's um, a guilty pleasure, then that's okay. Dash and Lily, not great. Um, but do I love the sappiness of it all? The holiday nostalgia? Yes. So I would give it a thumbs up. Nice. Um, I'm the critic though because I tend to like everything um <laughs> I love that though I mean really you could find something to love in everything there that's so much better than the opposite I mean we all know people like that who like never like anything who are always like you know just grouchy about everything it's so much better to appreciate everything and actually I find those rare I'm like that too I mean we've talked about that on the podcast it's rare that I find something that I hate but if I do it like makes it more fun when you do find those rare things that you're like, oh my God, I can't do this. The best are the shows that you could love and hate, like Emily in Paris. She should know French. She Before <laughs> she starts her first job in Paris, she should learn French. She should know French. Um, she should not try to bring the American perspective that is so condescending. And yet Lily, Ta what, wait, what's her last name? Colin. Lily Collins is adorable and she has amazing eyebrows. She's Phil um, Cullen's daughter, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's so true. So, you know what I find? You know what I find about um, Emily in Paris? It's Emily in Paris, right? That's what it's called. I I find I'm embarrassed, like like in that scene where uh, in Bridget Jones' Diary when she gets up and sings that terrible song because she's drunk and she's hockey. like, or when she gets up as a terrible public speaker. I feel that way watching Emily in Paris. I'm pretty sure that's not their intention. <laughs> I'm just consistently embarrassed for her. <laughs> oh, she is so embarrassing. But unlike Bridget, she's not funny. Correct. So she's like, oh, you are this sorority chick. I want to help you, but, um, but the French chef is really hot. <laughs> and all of these men seem to fall in love with her. And I get a vicarious thrill um, of, of that, even though she is so cringeworthy. <laughs> this is probably not my genre, and yet you've made me curious about it. I, I, I read a fascinating, uh, like a short think piece on um, that type of character where the, the writer calls that character the magnetic woman where the writing's not good enough to actually warrant that character's magnetism and yet everyone is magically falling in love with them and like following them around. And it was really, it was really great. I hadn't actually had it like synthesized for me like that before. It's sort of like your manic pixie dream girl trope. The magnetic woman is a trope. It's really interesting. I'll send it to you. I, I would imagine that nobody's written the article about the men who, you know, are, well, maybe somebody's written this article, but I mean, think about the flip side of that, right? The men who are completely uninteresting and boring in these movies and yet are attracting these amazingly beautiful women, okay. you know, multiple, it, it's, it, it's interesting with the one time it goes in reverse and all of a sudden we're writing articles about it, right? You know, right. but well, Meryl, what have you been watching? Yeah. Oh, I um, I am headed into finals here pretty soon. And so I am at peak buffering <laughs> and I 
am watching mm-hmm. nothing but the Great British Baking Show. Not a bad option. Uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a joy. Do you have any favorites this season so far? From from the contestants? Yeah. From, oh gosh. Oh my god. I've powered through like six seasons in two weeks. It's Oh, <laughs> it's a lot of hours of the great British baking show. And then I got really into the drama behind the scenes because I guess they switched channels. And so the hosts left and they didn't, they didn't know that they were switching channels. They found out on television, like watching television that their show had switched to a different network. And so they left the show and there's this whole turnover. There's a lot of background drama and I find it fascinating because the show is so like quaint and colorful and perky and lovely. All these amateur bakers are being put through hell for exactly nothing but a glass platter that says Great British Baking Show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are you caught up to this current season? Are I'm you not. with? Okay. I'm in season six. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt isn't hosting yet. It's okay. Joel and Sandy. I'm, I'm, of course, on a first name basis with them because they're my best. I don't love the new host situation, I have to say. No? No. Old, old, older ones were better. Oh, Sue and... Yeah. Erin, yeah. do you watch that show? Oh, no, I wish. I'm like the only person left in the world who um, isn't a big... I mean, I, I like the Bake Off. I just haven't gotten into it on the level that most of my friends have. I, but I imagine that if you, um, you're in law school, um, you're taking finals, it's a wonderful show to decompress. Um, and it's, it's just watching lovely people making beautiful things. And it's soothing. Soothing, that is accurate. That's accurate. I, yeah. But I am also watching <laughs> doing, love it. And I have watched Ted Lasso, so good. Somebody, somebody called it the, um, the next best thing to Shit's Creek since you don't have Shit's Creek anymore. And I'm like, yes, that's such a great description of Ted Lasso. It's like a nice, a nice next chapter. Yeah. And I just, nice. did you guys see the news? Did you guys see the news today? No. No. Jason Sudeikis, who played Ted Lasso, has ended his engagement after seven years of being engaged to Olivia Wilde. They have two kids together. And yeah, they dropped this news on a Friday night, which is called the Friday dump in the news yeah. business. Cause yeah. like everyone's going home, they're not working. They think it'll blow over. You know, it's not Brad and Jen, but I'm still, oh, you know, they seemed like such a nice, normal couple. And I'm just, I feel bad for Jason now because I have totally mistaken him for Ted Lasso. Like <laughs> he is that character to me now. Oh, that makes uh, really sad <laughs> and I you know I love it when I get sad for celebrities as if they're my friend <laughs> but you know you're always rooting for people to make it especially in that business it's so hard well the Friday dumped worked because I missed right? it yeah right but they should have dropped that news during like last week during the election you know it's- the slow, crazy election deal yep. that I'm still processing in my brain. <laughs> well, and see, we <laughs> I'm got still recovering from that. We got good news today, though. It is Friday the 13th as we record this. And I think, I mean, you know, the writing's been on the wall for a while, but I think Arizona and Georgia were pretty much officially announced for Biden today. So, you know, it's over. It's over. Although with this guy, is it ever really yeah. over? <laughs> I don't know. 
I hope so. I, I, I didn't even, I really didn't know I could be that stressed <laughs> over, over an election that's happening so far away from my life. And what, I mean, just the collective energy of this country was so intense and I just was like holding my breath. Yeah, that was rough guys. That was rough. I'm glad we all made it through it. Did you, did, did you guys like, um, take a lot of naps after the result was called on Saturday. Like I, I just, I was so tired that um, I just like didn't post anything on social media. I just kind of laid in on my couch <laughs> and watched bad Netflix rom-coms because I couldn't process like the, the, it was just the pure stress. I didn't even realize, like you were saying, I didn't even realize that I was containing it, yep. but it, my whole life became about defeating Trump, which is really weird. <laughs> it is, but very relatable. I actually had this moment today. I was in the middle of, you know, like another Zoom thing with somebody else. And I just happened to see this thing. I have one of those, like, uh, I forget what they're called, the Alexa Nest things or whatever that like has, you know, headlines that scroll by. And it's right behind the Zoom thing. It's right behind you guys. And there was something about Biden I can't even remember if it was a story about Biden or Trump, but it just like hit me again, as lame as this sounds. I was like, oh, you know, Trump said something ridiculous today, but you know what? In a couple of months, we're not going to have to hear about this anymore. Like the daily, we won't have to hear about it anymore. And that seems like such a simple thing. And I mean, he's going to go on any talk show that will have him, but I mean, like his voice will be, we won't care anymore. He's going to start like hemorrhaging supporters, you know, as he becomes less and less relevant. And that just hit me as like, a, he's not going to be in charge of us anymore. And it's, it's so, it was like, we've been in this so long under this complete chaos with him that just the idea that things might, we might have normal days ahead was just like a shockingly wonderful realization in the middle of a Friday out of nowhere, you know, that we might be all right again after a while. I know. I, this is a really funny story. Yeah. I am currently in New Mexico and New Mexico is a blue state and has been historically, but where I live is very red <laughs> where I am. And so I was, I was at, you know, I was thrilled about the election. <laughs> like no question, like hands down, I was doing a little dance, but everywhere I go, people are like, oh, it is tough times. It is so rough. I just don't know what we're going to do. It's really <laughs> scary. And I'm like, mm, um. <laughs> oh, I, um, you know, it's sort of like being in enemy territory. Not that they're my enemies. Like most of these people are, are lovely, but they, but I also can't, I don't speak my mind. Right. So I, I went to church on Sunday with my parents and this little old lady comes up to me and she goes, I thought you would be in New York celebrating. And it took me a minute to register what she was talking about. I was like, oh, she goes, yeah, wasn't it so great seeing all those people celebrate in the streets and seeing people happy for like they, that happy in so long and I went oh you're a democrat it's so <laughs> nice to meet you <laughs> you're the other one I was like I've been so lonely <laughs> it was a moment of oh you're my friend give me a hug <laughs> yeah 
we could we could talk about the election i'm sure forever let's see where were we what were we doing oh well we, we went from we went from talking about what we've been watching to the election so that's we right head right into plenty <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's go into let's go into plenty um although that was a really really awkward transition sorry guys um <laughs> that was like the world's worst transition <laughs> But yes, we are here indeed to talk about the 1985 comedy, question mark, plenty. <laughs> I'm not sure what to call this movie. I, I would call it a drama. Drama? Yeah, definitely a drama yeah. with um, unintentional comedic elements. Yes, I feel like I saw it listed somewhere as a comedy. And ever since then in my mind, I've been like, this isn't really trying to be a comedy, is it? What's happening here? Um, so usually Meryl gives us a synopsis. Are you up for that this time, Meryl? This one's harder than some of the other ones that we've done. I think we need to put this in Aaron's hands if you're willing. <laughs> you did it beautifully um, in the last podcast. So much better. Did, than I, did I explain it in the last podcast? So um, Meryl plays um, her most unlikable character ever. Her name is Susan Trahern, um, and she is the creation of David Hare, the playwright who um, was inspired by a, a statistic he had read about um, women in Britain who had served in World War II. They were spies. They were helping the resistance on the continent. They later got divorced from their husbands in like staggering numbers, and he wanted to write a play about a woman like that, like a woman who had a taste of freedom, you know, a taste of excitement in World War II. And then she had to go back to a stifling life of domesticity. So um, he did the play Plenty. It was a big hit on the West End. And um, this was a meaty part. Susan Trahern was a real uh, meaty Broadway part, the type that Meryl loved to sink her teeth into, but didn't translate as well. Um, in movies because this character was so unlikable and no one likes to watch prickly, unlikable, difficult women all the time. But Meryl really wanted this role and she got it. And um, yeah, I guess I'm, I am rambling now. I'm rambling. Yep. You wanted a synopsis. Great. So That's great. Susan Traher, the most unlikable character of Meryl's career. She was a World War II resistance fighter. Um, she got this taste of freedom, um, this excitement that only, you know, women rarely get. She goes back to the UK and she marries Charles Dance. He's, um, his character is this boring, staid diplomat. And she, um, you know, she has to like sit by his side at these dinners and draw conversation from boring old men and entertain people and she hates this life. So she starts to unravel mentally. <laughs> uh, she takes a lover, Sting, played by Sting and she like fires a gun at him. They have the funniest, most unintentionally funny sex scene yep. I've ever seen. Yep. And that it is, is disturbing, sex hilarious. Oof. And they didn't intend this to be as funny as it was, but um, like it's well done, but Everyone needs to watch and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> and it deals with her um, mental illness in this extremely campy way. Um, she just loses it. And 
it's how would I describe it? Um, it's tragic, but it's compelling. It is, it is camp. It is unintentional camp. And I know I'm not describing it <laughs> as well as I should, um, but it's it's one of my favorite roles she's ever played. And I would suggest that people, you know, take some time out and, and see it. <laughs> you no, will that's, not be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting movie for sure. And it definitely, I'm, I, I've been curious since our interview and, and since your book, why this one has been, uh, it, would you say this rates highly? Um, I, I know you said it's her least likable role. Is this one of your favorite Meryl performances? Yeah, I like my favorite, some of my favorite Meryl performances are um, Doubt, Sister Aloysius. Um, I love Lindy Chamberlain from A Cry in the Dark. Mm -hmm. I like when she plays um, to that part of herself that um, doesn't want to obey, doesn't want to conform, doesn't want to mold herself into what a woman should be. Because I feel like that's the real Meryl in there. Yeah, she's a wife and a mom and she comports herself with elegance and grace. Um, but inside she's a rebel. Like inside she's a bit of an anarchist. And David Hare, uh, the playwright, told me that there's this tension within Meryl between duty and freedom. So she's, um, she's a little bit of a flamethrower. Like she wants to sabotage her life and like go off and with Clint Eastwood <laughs> and leave her husband. Um, and she plays those characters, but there's something like pulling her back. Like in Bridges of Madison County, it's the duty to stay with her family. But Susan Trahern, um, she left her husband, she blew up her life and she followed her dream, even though her dream was kind of tragic <laughs> in the end. You know, so It's so funny. The first time I watched this movie, <laughs> I, I made a mistake in the watching of it. Like I misunderstood something. So Sam Neill is in it. And this is, uh, did he, did they film this before Cry in the Dark or after? Before. Before. This is one of two movies he was in with Meryl Streep and he plays um, a British uh, paratrooper who, who ends up landing in France where she is and they have this brief romantic affair and then he, he, he goes off to do his duty and she stays to do hers. And she sort of clings to this moment throughout the film as, as you know, the, almost like the romance that got away from her. She hangs on to his, I think it's cufflinks and just keeps them in her purse at all times. And I could swear I heard a line of dialogue that he was dead, that she had found out that he had died in the war, okay? So this is my understanding as we're moving through the picture. And then we get to the end of the film and she has this tryst with Sam Neill, they reconnect. And I was so, I was like, is he a ghost? <laughs> has she gone so crazy? that he's a fabrication of her imagination. And then I realized that's actually probably not, and then I realized, well, he didn't die, but that could be an interpretation of this. Yeah, that's an interesting, one of the things that actually throws me off about this that is interesting because I, as I was reading about the play and how it differed from the movie, not all that much really, except one of the things that the play did that they didn't do in the movie uh, was kind of go back and forth in time. Like the movie basically tells the story, you know, on a traditional trajectory of, you know, like forward moving time. 
And I guess the play, they kind of go back and forth. And, and that whole idea then in the play is to show kind of what Aaron, you were talking about earlier with like how bored she is and then juxtapose that with like how um, how exciting her life is when she has something during wartime to like be productive and kind of get, you know, there's very active and very kind of exciting and dangerous and rebellious things that she was doing there. And that juxtaposition kind of works nicely, I guess, in the stage adaptation and they just didn't do that for the film. And I found myself wondering if maybe that would have been a good choice for the film to do that. And the other thing that really throws me off is this movie uh, covers a span of like 20 some years. And yet she always looks basically the same. Like there's no real attempt to like age her, either de-age her or age her. And I feel like there, it would have been so nice to see like little timestamps or something as kind of basic as that is, because all of a sudden we're, seven years in the future and it's like wait a second who is this person that she's with now what's happening here anybody else feeling that yeah yeah it's like it's like suddenly she's living in tangier yeah <laughs> but she hasn't aged a bit and there's no um there's just this sense of maybe that was on purpose i, I don't know i i i believe you know i agree with you with the play that would have made this film much more interesting to see the juxtaposition um, and to see those cuts next to each other. Um, but I think maybe, I don't know if Fred Chapizzi thinks that way though. <laughs> I, right. think he's a linear I think he is a linear dude. Um, so I could read into it. Maybe the fact that she never aged is just a, um, you know, suggests the stagnance of her life. Mm. <laughs> How she felt it wasn't going anywhere, but I just think they didn't have a good makeup artist. <laughs> probably accurate her accent too um was like i never got to the bottom of this but it reminded me of princess diana like mm -hmm. it was kind of breathy and posh um and it, i don't know if she may listen to tapes of princess diana i would like to know um <laughs> but i i wonder if that was an inspiration for her accent here um Anyway, uh, I can totally hear her in my mind saying, your words, your words. There's the one scene. <laughs> I don't Wait, remember what she's talking about, but. What was that line? This is her favorite line she's ever said in a movie where they're at this diplomat dinner and um, she gets pissed off and she's like, Charles Dance is like, stop talking. And she was like, I will stop fucking talking when you stop fucking oh god what's the line i should know this yeah we but i remember um um tracy allman's character her character's reaction to this outburst was it's like psychotic cabaret mm -hmm. <laughs> so good okay let's see i would stop i would stop i would stop fucking fucking talking if i ever heard anybody else say anything worth fucking stopping talking for <laughs> <laughs> that is a good line that is the line. Um, and it's the campiest moment in the film. And also the moment where um, Charles Dance becomes so embarrassed that um, he, that's when their marriage starts really, really falling apart. But interestingly, Meryl and Charles Dance hated each other. They did not get along. Um, she and Tracy Ullman, who became her best friend, uh, from that movie, they ganged up. Uh, she played 
Susan's best friend. They ganged up on Charles. Um, they hated him too. And Meryl created that hostility because he was not as good of an actor as she is. He is not as good of an actor. So she had to make him hate her so that um, their hatred, their hostility on screen could feel authentic and she'd have something to react to. So he hated that she was so technical because he came from television. He came from like the BBC, um, Shakespeare. You do a scene, you have a pint. And she was more, um, you know, she's more technical, um, cerebral. He didn't like that though. He, he likes, quote, actresses who act from the gut. But he didn't realize that um, she has this mixture of um, intelligence and intuition that you just can't train and that he wasn't quite prepared for. So she, she had to really feel like she hated him and he, they still hate each other. <laughs> and I love that because I'd never heard of a feud that she ever had with anyone except for him. Even the Dustin Hoffman stuff, I heard this thing, um, or actually I read this thing the other day. This is a total sidetrack, but it's just kind of the feud thing because I always assumed that you know, the stuff we learned years later in Michael Shulman's book about, you know, Dustin hitting her and all this other stuff that happened and, you know, like him kind of egging her on with John Cazale's name, um, that, that she probably just hated his guts. But um, he, he claims, I guess, that when he was trying to get his voice down for Tootsie, like three years later, Meryl was the one he would call and practice the voice with. Have you guys heard that before? No, I've never heard that. That's crazy. It doesn't surprise me though, because they were friends. Like he was friends with Meryl and Don, mm -hmm. visit them in Connecticut, even though they had this um, kind of insane relationship. Well, he was the insane one. I mean, Kramer yeah. versus Kramer. I think that they had a real respect for one another that developed and definitely during the Oscar, the award circuit um, at the Oscars, they became real close because they were celebrating the fact that Kramer versus Kramer was the number one movie in America, but also won all these awards and they developed a real rapport. I don't know what it's like now because she kind of had to disavow him after Me Too yeah. when all of his antics came to light. But I think she was quite forgiving of him because he was a bit of a mess. Yeah. He was going through a divorce and just out of his mind, a method actor out of his mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Charles Dance is one of the people who shortlisted this year in the supporting actor to be possibly getting a nomination. He's in the David Fincher movie, Mank. That is like, there. it seems like there's about three or four movies this year that are gonna get all the awards. Nomenland, the Francis McDormand one, Mank, the David Fincher one, there's like two or three others. It's gonna be a really like condensed year, I think where like you only need to see five films and you've got them all. But um, Mank, apparently he's really, really good in it. And they, you know, they think right now he's on kind of the bubble. He may or may not get that nomination, but he's in the, he's in the running anyway. Sidebar. I, I wish that all of these awards were held in person. It'll probably be a long time, but I would love for them to be in the same room together and for yeah. us to see it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be so great. 
I, I know. <laughs> so what else, Meryl, what did you, what do you think of this movie? You know, on first watch, I didn't like it, but that's not, a, that's not a great way to say it because honestly, I liked so much about it. I, I loved, I loved the bookends. I loved the concept, like this idea that you're clinging to a romantic idea of something and it gets in the way of your whole life. Like that's such that's such a like sweeping tragic tale and i that resonated with me but there was something about it that was disjointed that i was having trouble with and you you nail it aaron when you call it unintentional camp and it starts really at the beginning when she's a resistance fighter and it turns out she's not very good at it <laughs> Like she has this, she has this sort of like panic attack in the woods and then, and sort of complains about what she's doing. And then she has the affair with Sam Neill, but then she like clings to this time in her life. And I was like, I don't, like, you seem to not like what you were doing very much back then. So I'm not sure why you're clinging to it. <laughs> well, and the the very first, I mean, that's within the first five minutes of the film. I mean, like, that's literally how the movie starts, right? Is she's in the woods and then he parachutes down because something's wrong with his plane. And the thing that it took me a couple of viewings to realize, because, yeah, that's what it looked like to me, too, is just this, like, kind of panic attack and just this kind of emotional breakdown. But I didn't notice that what she was doing was actually pointing a gun at the other soldiers that were there. Like she was, she was just going to, you know, start spraying them with, with gunshots. And he stops her from doing that. That Sam Neil, did you guys miss this too? <laughs> I missed it. I did not, I did not see that. I did not see I, that either. I didn't see it until like the third time that I watched that scene. And I was like, oh, wait a sec. This is something totally different then because what he's stopping her from doing is he's not stopping her from having this breakdown. What he's stopping her from doing is getting them both killed because they were way outnumbered. You know, it was just the two of them and there were like a ton of soldiers. Like she never would have. Right. And she had this tiny little pistol that probably had like, you know, five shots in the yeah, top. She, she had a panic attack and was about to make a really stupid choice. Yeah, no, right. I did that. Yeah. I did get that. And That's amazing. Maybe the message is that Susan um, doesn't adjust well anywhere. Like even in her adventure, she's doing all these fun, crazy things. Um, maybe she doesn't, maybe she'll always be a mess in any scenario and no man can truly save her. <laughs> I kind of love it for that reason. <laughs> like I think you're right like that is kind of the great thing about it is like no man can save her which is totally yeah. normal for not only the period the film is set in but also um like the time that this film was made it's not that it's abnormal in human life it's just abnormal to see on screen <laughs> you just didn't see that yeah and it's kind of frustrating in a way that this movie was then written and directed by men too, right? But I imagine she had a very strong hand in a lot of that. Yeah, I would not be surprised. The cinematographer was like, oh yeah, Meryl would just sit and curl up and read a book. And she was preparing for Out of Africa. But normally she um, doesn't get enough credit for being an auteur, like directing the director, writing, uh, rewriting the script, like in Devil Wears Prada. But I don't really know the extent to which she uh, helped author plenty 
I just think that she was like, she had a bunch of kids, young kids. She was jumping from movie to movie. I think she was in doing all these accents. I just think that she was in this mental headspace that was not unlike <laughs> Susan. She yeah. was starting fights with Charles Dance. She, I, I think Meryl was kind of um, in a kooky phase. Uh, and I can say that because it was like 1984 and it's long ago, but I think she was adjusting to her post Kramer fame and jumping into these weird corset roles. Like French Lieutenant's Woman, Woman was a super weird film. Like there's a bunch of movies in the eighties that she did, which a lot of people think the eighties is peak Meryl. I just think her roles were so, uh, what do I want to say? Um, so, like psychotic cabaret. Yeah. <laughs> Tracy Ullman. And very um, ambitious. Going from Sophie to um, French Lieutenant's Woman to Susan Trahern to Lindy Chamberlain. It was like a series of psych, you know, psychodramas. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the one, the one right before this was the biggest wild card of all really out of the 80s until She Devil, which was Falling in Love, the one with Robert De Niro. That's like a total, what is happening here, you know? Which hilariously has one of the second funniest sex scenes, unintentionally funny sex scenes I've ever seen. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) must not watch, must not watch. Falling in Love is one of my aunt's favorite movies. Really? Meryl has made like, I don't know, 65 movies. But my aunt is always like, I love falling in love. Nobody ever says that. And I was like, (laughs) "Hmm, why does it resonate with you so much? I don't want to ask. I don't want to ask. <laughs> I really, you know what? We just watched that and reviewed yeah. it. And I, I, re- I mean, it's flawed. <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's flawed. But I actually really loved it. I thought it was really, I thought it was really sweet. There was a tenderness to it that I was sort of unexpected from Robert De Niro. I had not seen it before. It was the first time I have seen it. It's one of the few Meryl Streep movies I have not seen um so yeah i liked it we we both gave it pretty positive reviews actually and i think part of that was because we're doing this 80s thing where it's all like you know it's if nothing else it's a lighter movie that like is super easy to follow there's literally nothing complicated about the entire movie you don't have to go who's that ever you don't have to go what's happening ever like it you know it's super straightforward and you know it's kind of it's fluffy like you don't the thing that we, you know, we're here to rehash another movie, but the thing that we kept wondering about is like, whose side are we supposed to be on here? Because like Jane Kaczmarek, Robert De Niro's wife is like totally likable and yet he's having an affair and we don't know if she's supposed to like, who are, who's, who are we rooting for in this one here? Do we want them to end up together or not? But anyway, plenty. Uh, yeah, this... <laughs> This one is just so, I don't even know what to say about, you know, the thing that I find interesting about this is like when we interviewed Fred, I would try to steer him to a cry in the dark with the question. He really wanted to talk about plenty. Like everything went back to plenty. And um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because cry in the dark is one of my very favorite Merrill performances. And like, I love that movie so much. And it was, I think more successful overall and kind of like, at least somewhat known today mostly because of the dingo ate my baby line but like nobody knows what plenty is you know so this it's interesting that he's 
that he really wanted to focus on plenty so much. There was something about the experience, I think, of making this movie. And there are some other, I mean, we haven't even touched about the fact that, um, you know, there are John Gielgud's in this movie and um, Ian McKellen is in this movie. There's some great stuff in this movie, but I don't think it's quite as interesting as some of her other ones. I mean, it is as interesting, but it's, it's not as fun to watch, I don't think, as some of her other movies, for me. Yeah, I, I think this is just, um, I keep on uh, coming back to the intentional camp, mm-hmm. but I think it's a, a really interesting example of a movie that set out to be something, you know, set out to stick to David Hare's play, recreate kind of the magic and drama of that play, but it became something else. And it became a piece of unintentional camp. And I, I love movies that are flawed and um, learning about the process of, um, of how they became flawed. <laughs> and just, um, you know, the characters, you know, on screen and off who helped achieve or didn't achieve the result that, <laughs> that they wanted. And I think Plenty is an example of a, Film. And it's weird that Fred Chapizzi wants to focus on Plenty Above a Cry in the Dark, which is the superior movie. Um, it is a really, really good true crime film. And it is precursor to a lot of the stuff you see on the streamers now. And it is so good and it's layered. Plenty is, that's, that's weird that he would <laughs> want to focus on Plenty. Um, because it is a film that um, was a flop on, on, on a lot of levels, but yet I enjoy because that character um, is so compelling uh, that she created. Um, and I, I just think it's funny. I think it's funny. And I think Meryl is unleashed. You know, she's fighting against the patriarchy embodied by Charles Dance, all the men who have tried to suppress her talent through the years. And she just goes crazy. And you can watch, watching it happen is a miracle for me. Like, I love it. I, I don't know why it's not like a, I think it's so old. Um, it's too old to be like a cult movie for, you know, um, LGBT yeah. community. <laughs> like it's far, it's 10 years, um, it's 10 years older than Death Becomes Her, but it has that, um, it has that feel to it. Another film has that going on as well is French Lieutenant's Women. And I think what's happening is like the style of like the, the late 70s, 80s had some serious melodrama going on. Like melodrama was a thing, or at least Meryl's film, she did quite a few movies that I think you could argue are definitely in the melodrama range. And they don't, I think the acting style and the writing style has not quite held up and it really now comes off as unintentional camp. And I, because the performances are so grand, they're so theatrical, like you could stick them on a stage and feel totally comfortable watching it, right? It wouldn't feel small at all. And I, I'm curious if that's it. I'm also thinking about our conversation with Fred and I think I'm curious, he had so many anecdotes about Plenty because he was surrounded by so many actors, actors and could, and I think he had more room in the process. I got the sense, and this could be me projecting, but I got the sense that Cry in the Dark was so stressful to make that everyone had their eye on the prize, head down, get it done. 
and that there wasn't a lot of room for the creative process to go to go down. And so I, I don't think he was as inclined to talk about that. I think it's very touchy because it was such a crazy, crazy experience. I, I concur uh, wholeheartedly with that, actually. I see exactly what you're saying. I mean, we talked with him, but it's well known. Aaron, you know this too, from talking to him and other folks about like how sensational that story was in Australia where they actually made the movie. And it was during the time, uh, you know, that the, the trial had just ended. I don't think she, I, she was still in jail. I think she hadn't won the appeal or anything yet. And so, I mean, like, yeah, people there hated Lindy so much that, yeah, you're, I think you're dead on, Meryl. Yeah, I, I agree too. Um, and that was just a really, really hard film to make because the Australian press and the public were vicious. Like they were stalking Meryl, confusing her with Lindy, um, making her to the point where she would cry on set. Um, she needed to move a few times with her family because the press was hounding her and it was just recreating what Lindy was going through, which was good for, um, I think good for <laughs> the role, but um, bad for her mental health. And all, all of these moving parts were happening because yeah, Lindy was still in jail and she was the most hated woman in Australia. Even though she is innocent, people still think she did it. Mm -hmm. Like I was in Palm Springs and this is in the book, but I was taking a lift somewhere and the lift driver is Australian. And I was writing the book. I think I was writing that chapter at the time. And I was like, hey, do you think Lindy did it? He's like, yeah, she did. My, my accent is so bad. He was like, yeah, she did, didn't she? And that's my terrible attempt. I am not Meryl Streep. But, um, but yeah, like she, it, like, like the OJ Simpson trial captivated, um, captivated a continent, um, except she, <laughs> Lindy Chamberlain was innocent. And I think um, maybe Fred has some residual PTSD over that experience because that movie flopped in Australia and right. it didn't do well in the US. Um, Roger Ebert gave it a glowing review. Nobody saw it. Uh, nobody saw Plenty either, but for some reason he likes that movie better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is which is interesting because I mean we've talked about this I think on the I think I mentioned this to Fred too but like a cry in the dark kind of had all the makings of a hit in a way like those kind of true crime right after you know but maybe it was just too soon after or something and people were just kind of overwhelmed with it and just needed a break it's kind of like if a Donald Trump movie came out right now I wouldn't want to watch it you know like, oh too soon. I didn't want to know anything about it like no way. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I, I find myself thinking about with Plenty is how much I would like to see it on stage, actually, to kind of see. And did you guys know that in 1999, Kate Blanchett did it? And then in 2006, Rachel Weiss did it? Not, I don't think either of them were on Broadway. I think Rachel Weiss's was, I think they were both in London. I'm not positive. But I mean, like, pretty great actresses are still playing this yeah. role. Oh, I would love to see Kate Blanchett. Mm -hmm. anything on stage but she would be she's um, was probably amazing in that role yeah I did see her Meryl did you see her when she was on Broadway a few years ago no the Chekhov one 
No, it's a tragedy. Yeah, I did see it. Uh, I, I saw it when she was there and she is really good on stage. The, the play that she did, it was this like long lost Anton Chekhov play that her husband adapted. Um, but it was, uh, it was kind of a meaty role, actually not unlike, not unlike Susan. I mean, like really, I, there's a lot of similarities between the two now that I think about it. So I can see what the, what the draws. I mean, I can see why, why actresses would still want to play this part. And it probably on stage is a little bit more interesting, um, then I, I feel like it's probably a more visceral theatrical experience than watching it on screen in some ways. Yeah, I, I do have to say the last moment of Plenty when we cut back to her on the last day of the war and she's standing on the hillside in the French countryside gutted me in a way I was not expecting. <laughs> because that unintentional camp leads to a bit of detachment while you're watching the film, right? You, you sort of go through the motions and you're really observing the film rather than in it. And then we got to that last moment where she's standing on the hillside and says, I'm going to have so many days like this. And it just wasn't true. And my heart broke. <laughs> and so I feel like Fred did his job. In that moment, he did his job. Mm -hmm. I mean, if yeah. nothing, it's a super interesting movie, which is something that you can't say for every film that's been made, you know? It's worthy, I can see, I'm, I'm curious too, we didn't ask Fred, I mean, we didn't ask Fred specifically this question, and I don't know if he would have told us anyway. I don't know if this was a role that like, there was a lot of competition for, uh, like was everybody gunning for this part or I don't know, or maybe it was just promised to Meryl right, right off the bat or something. I Joe Pat produced it, so. Yeah, I think he did yeah. talk to us about the process of casting her. Erin, did you talk to him about that? No, weirdly, I do not recall this. Um, uh, sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but Joe Papp produced it, right? Yeah. Oh, then it was given to her. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think she was sort of, it was a mutual conversation, an organic conversation between the parties involved that, that it came about. But I do remember him saying that he sat down with David Hare and talked about building the character because I think I, it was my understanding that in the play she's even more unlikable. It was a very it was very similar to the Kramer versus Kramer conversation where um, that character really had to be given some some more depth before he was willing to direct it. So I thought that was a really interesting piece of this puzzle. Yeah. Um, uh, in the theatrical version, which which premiered in 1978, it was Kate Nelligan. I don't know if it's Nelligan or Nelligan. And she was opposite Kelsey Grammer. No. Yeah. Oh my God. How did I miss that? Kelsey and Grammer. Kelsey Grammer and Dominique Chianese, who you might know as Uncle Junior from The Sopranos was in it. I'm, I don't know who else. Well, he must have played the, who would he have played? Would he have played the John Gilgood role maybe? I don't know who he would have played. Um, and then when they when it transferred to Broadway in 83, uh, Edward Herman, who is probably best known from Gilmore Girls, you would know his face if you don't recognize his name. Yeah, um, he was in it. And a, a few other names here that I don't recognize. But yeah, Kelsey Grammer in this kind of actually makes some sense to me. <laughs> I can see him. It's, it's kind of yeah. spot on Frasier, right? He, I mean, he fits the role. Yeah. It's Frasier with that, with like a little bit less self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, maybe more Niles than Frasier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. 
Well, okay. anything else anybody wants to say about this movie? Anybody have any favorite scenes or anything? Oh, um, the um, scene where she goes nuts yep. and, you know, the stop fucking talkings, you know, <laughs> I'll stop fucking talking scene. That's my favorite. Um, I also, I'm a fan of Sting. <laughs> so I love the scenes with him um, as her lover because they're so unexpected and Meryl never talks about that. <laughs> She's done so many movies. She never reminisces about the fact that she was in a movie with Sting. Um, I love the scenes um, when um, Charles Dance and Tracy Ullman are in North Africa. I love the big budgetness <laughs> feel of this movie, despite despite it feeling like such a small movie at the same time. Those are my thoughts <laughs> on the weirdest Meryl movie that I've ever seen. <laughs> those are th those are good thoughts. Um, so, okay, here's one thing though, because Sting won the Kennedy Center. Um, honors one year i'm looking this up right now sorry i'm distracted here um he won the kennedy center honor one year so you know that thing where there's like you know five people who are who are nominated or who win this award and um i'm trying to look this up quick here because she actually was one of the people who honored him and i remember kind of forgetting that um okay so here are the people it was 2014 uh, the nominees or the people who won that year were Al Green, Tom Hanks, Patricia McBride, Sting, and Lily Tomlin. And so it had been announced that Meryl was, you know, doing a, a speech for one of them. And at that point, she and Tom Hanks hadn't made the post yet, but she and Lily Tomlin had made Prairie Home Companion. And I had kind of forgotten that, you know, Sting was in this movie and that this movie was, you know, a thing. <laughs> and so I thought, well, obviously she's presenting to Lily Tomlin. And so when she came out and presented to Sting, it took me a few minutes. I was like, what is the connection here between these two? Because it seems so obvious for Lily Tomlin, but no, she presented to Sting. And she really, um, I remember she said, I think her speech wrapped up with quoting, I'll be watching you. <laughs> 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 did, did you guys did you guys see her um i think this was like last week her video tribute to share share no won some kind of um cat she won the kate hepburn award I, I didn't even know that was a thing so meryl did a little video tribute it is so cute um it is very personalized um she tries to figure out which tree Cher would be if she were a tree because Catherine Hepburn would have said she would be an oak tree. So Meryl was like, what tree would you be? A slender Beverly Hills palm. And all of a sudden the, the frond drops upon an unsuspecting presidential candidate. <laughs> or maybe you, you would be an almond tree because you're kind of nuts. And then it, it's so cute. Everyone, it must be on YouTube. But Meryl does so many of these tributes yeah. And you're like, what's the connection? And you're like, oh, she started a film with this person in the 80s. But anytime these people win an award, they're like, oh, I was in a scene with Meryl for like one second, but it still counted. She should present my award. And that's yeah. how. It and she does. Yeah. She's a badass. She gives yeah. it 110%. <laughs> Looking that tribute video up immediately. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely on YouTube. I mean, the... 
she had won that award in 2011. And I mean, like that show is always so, it's produced so well, like the sound that they get for the performers there is unbelievable. I don't know who produces that show, but it's always just like impeccably produced. It's really wonderful. The Catherine Hepburn Awards? No, the uh, uh, Kennedy Center Honors. Oh, the sorry. Kennedy Center Honors. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No. I was on the same page with you, Erin. I was like, really? That's it? I didn't know. <laughs> No, sorry, I didn't. Uh, I didn't thread the needle on that one. Sorry. <laughs> I have to say that Sting is actually one of my favorite parts of this movie. There's something like talk about somebody who's just acting from the gut. It's like he was like, oh, they told me I would be in a movie today, so I'm showing it up, and I'm just giving it my gut instinct, right? And it's like it's so great. I love him in this film. You know tying this into our uh, opening segment in the in the current season of the great british baking show is it the great british baking show or bake off so it's it's the great british bake off in the uk but for copyright reasons they had to name it the baking show in the us so it's okay. both it's both okay so somebody one of the contestants like makes a joke about sting and then they say something i mean like i just watched this 2 days ago and they were talking about, well, not embarrassing Sting, not loot playing Sting, it's like good Sting. And I was like, you know, Sting really gets a bad rap. Like people are so quick to make fun of Sting. And you know, he's he's been in the game for a while. He's put out some quality stuff. Yeah, he's got a few, you know, but don't, doesn't everybody have a few that are, you know, not quite as good. I that think- feels, That yeah. feels like gold album. That, that, that was my childhood. Oh. Yeah. I effing love Fields of Gold. <laughs> Desert Rose. <laughs> love it. When he started playing the liar, though, in the 2000s, that's when he went off the rails. Well, that's that's what they were saying on the Great British Baking Show, too. But, you know, it was, I don't know. It is what it is. He's he's doing something unique, you know? I like it. Um, so let's see. This movie was had a budget of about 10 million and it made about 6.1 million. So yeah, this movie did not do particularly well. It's not one of our higher rated movies, you know, in, in the IMDb scale and Rotten Tomatoes, it's kind of near the bottom. Um, one of the other things that I uh, typically do, Aaron, is I read... Uh, just for fun, a one-star review on IMDb, mostly because the people who write these really have like an ax to grind and it's always inexplicable. We don't know why and who they have an ax to grind with. Um, so this one I think is kind of middle of the road. It's got, it's got a little tongue to it, but it doesn't have, uh, it's also kind of short and sweet. It's called Plenty of Nothing. Is the, re is the title of the review. It's one of three one-star reviews. It's written by Kenny R. Taylor and it was written in 2020, actually this year. This movie is so up itself. I'm convinced it was a parody of a drama that I haven't seen. At least Sam Neill had the good sense to get in and out of it quickly. Well played, sir. It's an absolute stinker. Makes Weekend at Bernie's seem like Citizen Kane. A <laughs> um, couple of things that I like about that. One is the thought that Sam Neill just quit the movie apparently, or just decided I'm not doing this. You know who wrote that? Sam Neill. <laughs> yeah, Sam Neill wrote that. 
it is it is always interesting when like one person is called out as being like really good in this movie that's being slammed you're like oh that's uh, you know that's that person but um yeah this was like sam neill's first movie i think we talked with fred about that he sam neill had done television before this but i think this was literally his first movie if i'm not mistaken he was not like some known commodity at the time that was you know yeah, I'm sure he was thrilled to do this movie. Oh, yeah. That, that review is hilarious. Uh, Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, the Weekend at Bernie's reference. Citizen <laughs> Kane. Um, Sam Neill. <laughs> was great in Jurassic Park. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but but um, I agree with that one-star reviewer, and I respectfully disagree, too. I mean, I can hold two thoughts in, in the same, in my head at once, the sign of intelligence, but um, but I don't think he's wrong um, that it's a stinker because it is. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. But it's so it's also so watchable. You know, like it's a it's a it's a study. It's yeah, like you know, um, you guys have seen the room, right? I've never seen the room. Oh, it is. Please watch it. It is so good. The, um, I assume the Tommy Wiseau one, not the Brie Larson one, right? The Tommy Wiseau one. Oh. Yes. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> the original, and then um, the the movie based on that and the making of that movie, starring James Franco, is really good too. But Tommy Wiseau, right? Um, mm-hmm. He set out to make something serious but it turned out to be enjoyably awful. And um, it started, it's, it, has its, it has its own cult fan base. People go to midnight screenings or they used to before the pandemic and throw spoons at the screen because there's a scene where like he throws a spoon. Uh, it's ridiculous. Plenty gives me that same feeling. <laughs> like, I love it. I, I just, I think it's five stars, but I'm going to go in there and, bump up the rating there you <laughs> go. well and there are some there are some very you know loving reviews of it too there are some probably some 10 star reviews that probably take it a little bit too far too you know it's it's somewhere in the middle if we're looking at it honestly but you know what's the fun in that really um so Meryl and I keep active lists of where we slot these in both in terms of our performances and our films Meryl do you did you set yours or no I have not yet but I'll pull it up right now while you're doing that I have this so I think we are at we're at close to 40 of these that we've done Aaron we're you know, oh. we're getting there we're getting there and I have this probably in 27 I haven't numbered all of mine because we've been adding a bunch lately uh so I think this is at like 27 out of 40 for me in terms of performances and then in terms of the ranking of the films it's closer to 30 out of 40 so it's you know it's not the very bottom but it's also not you know it's not in the top 20 it's not in the top half of my favorite performances Erin where do you think this might sit for you if you had made your list of all of her movies because you've watched all of them too yeah oh gosh um it's it's really hard because she we all know she's good in everything almost everything I have a my top 10 list is always changing mm-hmm. it's not static there are um gosh what's my number one I have to say Julia Child. I, I just love that performance. And I love Sister Aloysius. But where is where does Susan Traherne fit in? Um, I think she's in my top 10. I really do. I 
I wrote this, I had to sit through a million, had to, I sat through <laughs> a marathon of Merrill movies and it was a lot. And this performance, when I was writing the book, it kept springing to mind. Like it is one of her most memorable. Mm -hmm. Out of everything that I had seen, I remembered Susan, uh, which makes me think that it's right up there in, the, in my top 10. But I tend to like her, um, her warm and fuzzy performances. Those are my, you know, I, I put those up top, but there's space for Susan. <laughs> do, you, do you have any others? Sorry, not to, not to you know, hold off with you, Meryl, but the, um, do you have any others that you think people would be surprised is one of your favorites. Like both of us really love postcards from the edge that rates really highly for both of us. The post is also really high. I'm not sure a lot of people would rate the post as high as, as each of us has. Um, I have on my list, Manchurian candidate is kind of high. It's, uh, you know, within the top 15, the river wild is up there. Uh, there are a lot of these movies that, you know, we all have some sort of kind of unexpected ones. Oh yeah. Uh, one of my favorites is Ricky and the Flash. Interesting. Uh, I love Ricky. I love how she's kind, she just reminds me of a Southern Californian um, kind of drifter lady sings back up in the band or no, she has a cover band and plays yeah. Tom like stale Tom Petty covers. I love that she's like for the troops and she's like total Republican, but doesn't really know what that means. I love that she's a bad mom and that um, she's called back by Audra McDonald. <laughs> you know, well, actually she's called back for a wedding, right? And like to reconnect with her daughter, her daughter portrayed by her real life daughter, Mamie Gummer, you know, tries to commit suicide. So she has to come back and like, but she teaches her daughter shit. Like this, this kind of dopey woman comes back and teaches her daughter to take control of her own life, get over her divorce, and walk on, walk on. <laughs> and that was her like um, advice to her. I love, love, love that she learned the guitar in like three months. And I love that song she sings, Cold One. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it was written by the Pretenders or she was doing some sort of Chrissy Hind impression. So anyway, she sings a song called Cold One. You can see it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's fantastic. I love this role because it's so not Meryl. Yeah. <laughs> it's written by Diablo Cody, who I love. So everything about it, I, I love Ricky and the Flash. That is an unexpected one. That's one that we both kind of have down on our list. And I think the reason for me is because that's like my world, you know, as a musician, I <laughs> was so excited yeah. that she was making that movie. And I was like, a, a movie where Meryl gets to play guitar and sing, I can't wait. And then the character, it was just, uh, there was something, it was actually the writing for, for me that I didn't love about that movie. I loved her performance in it. I thought she did a great job, but there were just a few too many like strange choices for me in the script on that one. But you yeah. know, it, it, it is what it is. Also, yeah. Neil Young taught her how to play guitar. Neil Young taught her how to play guitar. Only, only like, only that can happen to Meryl. Only yeah. like, that's her teacher. Yeah. Like, of course. Of course. Of course. Meryl, have you figured out your uh, list there? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, for performances, it, it falls in the lower half for me. Just because I have so many that I love so much. And it's getting more challenging each week. 
So I have it, I have it between the laundromat and House of the Spirits. Oh, wow. That is pretty low for you. Oh, House of the Spirit is, oh, ooh, oof. Listen, there is only one Meryl Streep movie I hate. And you can't even call it a Meryl Streep movie because she's basically a cameo and that's The Homesman. It's ranked in last place and it will remain in last place at <laughs> the end of time. Oh my God. She did Tommy Lee Jones a favor. She did. I, I found like that, that movie pushed my buttons in ways and I was like, this is so offensive. I just, I'm gonna walk away. <laughs> and I'm a huge Western fan, massive, couldn't do it. So it's ranked a little bit lower for me just because there are so many other, but I actually really love her when she's playing quote, unlikable women. Like in the top five are Cry in the Dark and Devil Wears Prada for me. And Devil Wears Prada is just a fun movie, but she's so fantastic in that part. <laughs> she's brilliant. And then it ranks, I have it above Still of the Night. Okay. <laughs> I might move it up further. Oh, tonight. that was another stinker. Yeah. That, I think she has called her worst movie, Still of the Night, she's referred to as her worst film. Yeah. There's just something off about Plenty, tonally. It's just yeah. not quite worth it. And I, there are things I love about it and performances I love about it, and it's eminently watchable. And I don't want to discourage any of our listeners who haven't seen it from watching it because it's worth watching. But it, it, there's something disjointed about it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is kind of fascinating in its own way, for sure. Cool. Anybody else have anything they want to say about this one? Shall we move on to our other segments? Let's do it. I did, I did warn Aaron about our other segments here. I don't know if you want to play our games or not, the silly games. I'm hopeful that you guys have uh, movies we wish Meryl was in because I'm realizing I forgot to think of one. So I'm gonna, let's start with the other one. Let's do Six Degrees first and I'm gonna try to think at the same time. Uh, who can connect Jennifer Lopez to Meryl Streep? This is like a real time challenge. Yeah. Movies, movies. Um, Jennifer Lopez was in Mother-in-Law with Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda was in Juliet with Meryl. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mother-in-law. Monster yeah. I've got a few, but I don't want to take away the fun. I'll do one. How about I'll do one? Yeah, do one. Um, this is one that I, I don't think anybody else saw this movie. She, in fact, I can't remember what it's called. I have to look it up. <laughs> she made a movie with Robert De Niro or uh, Robert Redford and Morgan Freeman, and it had a bear in it. Uh, what was it called? And Robert Redford has been in a couple oh, things with Meryl. Life or? Yeah, something life. I saw it in the theater. I was the one, an unfinished life. Close. Made the same year, apparently, as Monster-in-Law. But there are a couple other ones, too. Oh, she made a movie with Viola Davis called Lila and Eve in 2015. That actually was pretty good. It was a kind of small, independent movie, I think, that not a lot of people saw. They played two mothers who, like, basically became vigilantes because their sons had each been murdered, if I remember correctly. But I remember it was, it made, the trailer did not make it look particularly good, but... Um, it actually wasn't a bad movie. Um, and then the other one that I thought of basically as soon as you said it, because it's one of my very favorite movies, I love this movie, is Out of Sight, that movie that she did with George Clooney um, a while ago. It was one of her first movies. I love that movie. 
that's so good. George Clooney was in Fantastic Mr. Fox with Meryl, which kind of counts, but the other connection there is Albert Brooks is in Out of Sight, and he was, of course, in Defending Your Life with Meryl. Has, have Ray Fiennes and Meryl Streep ever made a movie together? They haven't, have they? I don't think so, no. Like they should have. Any, anytime she doesn't make a movie with somebody, I assume there's a reason for it. Maybe she doesn't like Ray Fiennes. <laughs> Maybe she didn't like Tom Hanks, but oh, you know, maybe she just didn't get the opportunity until the post. Right. Spielberg and Tom Hanks. Anyway. Yeah. That was something interesting Fred said, you know, they, they have wanted to work together again since they finished these two films in the 80s and that opportunities, uh, very few opportunities have come up where the universe melded to even create a discussion and everything has fallen through and how challenging filmmaking is. So it's like a miracle anything gets made, to be honest. I thought that was really interesting and sort of resonates with that. You know, if she hasn't been in a film with an actor, it's probably because it can't make it work schedule-wise. Well, and you know, I realized, cause he said, well, we almost worked together on one. And I think I know which one he was talking about because when he made a movie called Six Degrees of Separation a few years later, Soccer Channing was up for an Oscar for that, but there were rumors that Meryl really wanted that role. Uh So I think that might've been the one, but I think Stocker Channing had played it on Broadway. And so maybe she, who knows? Okay, well, we didn't decide who our next person should be. Should we say Ray Fiennes since we're talking about him? Yeah, let's do it. I don't think that'll be hard. Probably not, but nothing comes to mind right away. So, well, all right. And then our last segment, which I'm going to go last in, is movies we wish Meryl was in. Anybody got one of these? No, of course I don't. Hang on. I'm going to think about this. I'll say one that she wished she was in and that um, that I think would have been better. The Madonna um, version of Evita. I, that was I, the only I, movie adaptation of Evita. Yep. But... Meryl lobbied for that role hard for it. At one point, um, who's that kind of crazy director? Um, Oliver who, Stone. Yes, he was gonna direct this, Paula Abdul was gonna choreograph <laughs> and, um, and Meryl was gonna star as Ava Perone. It didn't get made. And then like three years later, Madonna was attached to the, you know, the one um, movie musical. I think she was great in it. But I think Meryl would have brought more, um, even more range <laughs> vocally and acting wise. So I think I that, that would have been interesting. I agree. I think that's the lost movie in Meryl's filmography. Like, I think if we could redo, I know the one time she talked about like really, really gunning for a part that she didn't get was um, the Sweet Dreams, the Jessica Lang, uh, Patsy Klein. Jessica Lang. Um, the Patsy Cline biopic. Right. Meryl always wanted to sing and she was desperate to do it. <laughs> right. And Evita, like that, you know, that was early 90s. That would, that would have been like, you know, 1990 probably when they were talking about that. And it, it ended up being six years later that they actually did make the movie. And I think by that point, she had just kind of walked away from it. It was something had become like less interesting about it to her. Um, by that point, or maybe maybe she felt like it wasn't right for her at that point in her life or something. But I think that is the movie that would have changed things up, would have shaken yeah. things up a little bit, much more than the Patsy Cline one would have, I think. 
she also really wanted Thelma and Louise. She wanted to play Louise. Um, I can't picture anybody else but Susan Sarandon in that role. So I would not say that Meryl would make that movie better. <laughs> well, yeah, because that was, they were talking about that. She and Goldie Hawn, I think, were the original, like, they were going to re-team for that one, right? Yeah. Ridley Scott didn't feel that Meryl was bad enough. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, there's an age difference between Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. There's not much of one between Goldie and Meryl. No, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're peers. Yeah, uh, so but, I don't know how that works, but. Yeah. I would have, um, I just rewatched Raiders of the Lost Ark um, in another moment of buffering. I watched the Indiana Jones trilogy because oh, I, I love it. just love me some Steven Spielberg, especially I would have liked to see Meryl Streep in Readers of the Lost Ark as Karen. I mean, so good. Right. You know, never wanting to replace anybody, but, or in any of the, any of them, it would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, Is Elsa maybe in Crusade too? It's ours, Indy, yours and mine. (laughs) Let her, let her go, Indiana. Um, I love that trilogy so much. Uh, and honestly, I watched Last Crusade because um, of Sean Connery. He passed away, and he's so funny in that movie. He's great, and and my my cousin is in that movie in the first of the movie, or I should say, my dad's cousin. He was a stunt man. He's the he's the Native American with the long dark hair and the red bandana. That's oh my the, gosh! The group, yeah. So I, my dad and I had a great time watching <laughs> the Last Crusade this week. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. I thought of one. I thought of one. We were talking about Goldie Hawn and I quick looked her up and looked at some of her movies. Have you guys seen a movie that Goldie Hawn did called Deceived in the early 90s? So good. I know. I love this movie. I forget this movie. What is this movie? She plays, so she and John Hurd are like a happily married couple, kind of, you know, very bougie Upper West Side kind of situation. And he gets murdered or he dies somehow. I don't know if he was murdered or what the story was, but he dies. And then she finds out uh, <laughs> he's not dead. I mean, like deceived, he's not dead. And he had this whole like, like secret life that she's kind of like stumbling upon. And then she finds out, oh, he, he's not dead. He was faking it. And it's a really cool, like little mystery thriller thing. It's so, it's so good. That movie left an impression. I forgot about that movie. I know. Well, and it's been, you know, 1990, 1991, something like that. I distinctly remember this movie. And it's one of my favorite Goldie Hawn performances because there's nothing Goldie Hawn like about this movie at all. Like she's just so not her like typical bubbly self that you hire Goldie Hawn to be, you know, like she's a very, like kind of somber version of herself and um but also just she's really good in the movie too it's like the most normal role probably she's ever taken in her entire life maybe i should watch this tonight it's pretty good yeah. i'm an elder millennial i should remember this <laughs> you, you will love it Aaron. it's so classic 90s it's so well made you will enjoy it from beginning to end yeah. Well, and it's also really a simple movie too. I mean, it's just another one that like you could put it on stage, one set, three characters. It's almost like wait until dark in that way. Like it's got a very simple like 
premise to it, you know? Yeah. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for doing this show. I'm so glad. I don't know, we wouldn't have had nearly as much to talk about without your insights into this movie. I'm so glad you did this one with us. Um, too. It's so great to actually meet you. Woo-hoo. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I love to talk about Plenty and Meryl and anything related to her in the culture because she connects you know, as your game implies to everything and everybody. Well, thanks everybody. This was a fun Friday night. So fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. And um, have a good good weekend. Um, You too. Thank you. You too. Have a restful weekend and I will watch Deceived. I will. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. I will. I I will find it on Apple movies. Next next time you're on, we want to report back on what you thought and whether or not you can see Meryl in this. I want to rewatch it and see if I can actually see Meryl in this role. Although, of course, she could have, but she could have done that role like with her <laughs> with a blindfold on. But it, it still would have been fun. Yeah. Cool. So, cool. Uh, all right. Well, thanks everybody. Have a good one. Hi everyone. Bye. Bye. That's all.